Bible in the seat back in front of you, it should be page 489, Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. In the past few years, there have been several books that have come out with the phrase, Leadership Matters, somewhere in the title. Leadership does matter, doesn't it? Probably all of us have suffered and endured being in a toxic or a dysfunctional environment produced by poor leadership. Maybe it was a supervisor at work, maybe a teacher in the classroom, maybe a friend in a circle of friends, maybe even a parent in the home. Hopefully, though, we've also at other times gotten to experience the wonderful difference that really good leadership makes and how a great leader can improve the whole atmosphere. Leadership matters. And this matter of good leadership is a central concern in the context into which today's scripture, the prophecy of Isaiah 9, is being spoken. And I want us to pay attention to this context because I fear that most of us, myself included, uh, for us, the, the primary context in which we've usually heard and thought about today's text has been Hallmark cards and um, cozy Christmas services. But that, of course, is not what was going on when God originally inspired Isaiah to speak these words. Rather, the original context into which these words were given was a crisis of leadership. You can read about the crisis back in Isaiah 7. The time was around 735 B.C. The place was Jerusalem. The king of Judah at the time was King Ahaz. And Ahaz had a huge problem. You see, as Ahaz was becoming king, the great and dreadful empire of Assyria was pushing westward and southward, threatening the region of Palestine. Assyria had already built a vast empire to the east, and they had set their sights on expanding that empire all the way to include Egypt in the west. But to do that, they had to control Syria and Israel and Judah. And now if we can have the close-up of Palestine, the kings of Syria and of Israel had joined forces to stop Assyria. And they were pressuring Judah to join them in this alliance. But for whatever reason, Ahaz, king of Judah, refused. And so the two kings invaded Ahaz with the object of deposing him as king and putting a king more to their liking on the throne of Jerusalem who had joined them in this alliance against Assyria. Now to make matters worse for Ahaz, the kings of Philistia and Edom used this opportunity of weakness to attack Judah as well. Ahaz and the people of Judah were in a real jam. This was a critical situation, the kind of situation which calls for really good leadership. And so back in Isaiah 7, the Lord had appeared to Ahaz through Isaiah. And the Lord invited Ahaz to trust in the Lord, who promised that the Lord would rescue Judah out of this crisis if Ahaz would just trust him. But Ahaz refused. He had a better idea. He said, I know, why not make friends with Assyria and get Assyria to attack Israel and Syria to get them off my back? And this is the course that Ahaz chose in his own wisdom, and the results were predictably devastating. 
On the one hand, Assyria did attack and defeat Israel and Syria and annex their land into the Assyrian Empire. In fact, the land described in Isaiah 9.1, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the nations, the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan, that was the Israelite land that Assyria conquered and devastated and annexed. But Judah, meanwhile, also had to become subject to Assyria and to her gods. And Judah never really gained her independence again from that moment of that faithful, fateful decision by King Ahaz to go his own way, to trust in his own wisdom instead of trusting in the Lord. That's what happens when you trade in the true and the living God and put your trust in man-made solutions instead. That was the leadership failure of King Ahaz. Leadership matters. All right, well, ministering throughout this situation was the prophet Isaiah. And if you read Isaiah 7 and 8, you see that Isaiah was repeatedly prophesying to Ahaz and to Judah during this time, warning them, um, condemning them for their lack of belief and trust in the Lord, and also offering those who remained faithful to the Lord hope that though they might suffer now along with the rest of the unfaithful people of God, that one day God would rescue them. Now central to Isaiah's prophecies of hope and, and, and all of his prophecies of, of, of warning and, and correction during this time, central to these prophecies were several children whose names bore important messages for God's people. There was, of course, first of all, the child Emmanuel, whose name means God with us. Then there was Shir Yashub, whose name means a remnant will return. And also Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It was on our top ten list when we were thinking of names for our children. <laughs> Maher Shalal Hashbaz. His name means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And all of these names were double-edged swords. That's why God gives husbands wives. <laughs> Anyway, each of these names was a double-edged sword because the Lord would be with His people both to rescue them from the immediate threat of Israel and Assyria by granting Assyria victory over these other two nations, but the Lord would also be with His people to punish them for their unbelief by sending Assyria to oppress them because they trusted in Assyria instead of the Lord. But then finally... There's this other child in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. Wonderful he will be called. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now is this his name? It's longer than Maharshala Hashpas. <laughs> or are these royal titles that are being given to this unnamed king? Is this child the same as one of the other children? Maybe Emmanuel? Or is this a new child? It wasn't immediately clear at that time. Well, whatever this child's identity, this child's name is not a double-edged sword. There's nothing negative in the naming of this child. His birth brings only hope and blessing for God's people. He is a child of pure grace. So in this situation in which leadership matters, and in which Judah's leader, King Ahaz, failed miserably, 
thus bringing misery on all of God's people. Into this situation, Isaiah offers hope. He foretells the ascendancy of a new king, a new leader who will bring uh, only good and blessing for the people of God. I find it interesting that Isaiah focuses on the birth and the infancy of this king as of the other children. In times when political intrigue was the name of the game, uh, international relations and, and scheming was what was going on, and, and King Ahaz insisted in this on relying on his own wits and wisdom and playing power games on the international scene, that God, by contrast, points our attention to little children who have no political savvy or wisdom or ability, but rather who show us what it means to be dependent and to trust. As one commentator put it, while the king calls in an army, God looks to the birth of a child. And so as we gaze in this coming week at the baby in the manger, let's remember that lesson and that that's still God's lesson for us. In these times when everyone else is prognosticating about political solutions for our problems and potential problems. Okay, so who is this child of such significance? And what role will he play in God's workings through his people and in the course of history? Well, let's dig into our passage a little deeper now. Isaiah begins by proclaiming good news for Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee and the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan. The very places which have just been hardest hit by the Assyrian invasion. These peoples who several years ago had known freedom and peace and who now experience gloom and distress under the, the humbling judgment of God who has sent Assyria to oppress and destroy them. God is saying to such peoples, things may be bad now, and they may be bad for some time. You're reaping the just rewards of your sin, but judgment is not the last word. No, undeserved grace is the last word. So hang in there, for the day is coming when in my grace I will come again to save you. Then in verse 2, Isaiah continues prophesying in the past tense. The events that Isaiah is talking about hadn't come to pass yet, but they were so certain that God could speak about them as if they'd already taken place. God's people were walking, walking in darkness. They were living apart from the presence of God who was their light. And because they were walking without God, there was a darkness over their land. Suffering and trouble and humiliation and hopelessness. But now, Isaiah says, a light has dawned. A great light. The night is fading. The darkness is being dispelled like the morning mist as the bright morning sun shines upon it. God is doing something huge. Something transformational. He's coming in mercy and grace to bless His people again. This reminds me of the first Narnia story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When uh, Narnia was locked in perpetual winter under the, the spell of the evil witch. But, but now, 
As the story continues, Aslan is stirring. Aslan is, is on the move in Narnia again. And so a great thaw begins. And signs of spring begin to appear. The snow melts. The flowers bloom. The shoots of green grass push up out of the earth. That's what God is up to. That's what Isaiah is foretelling in this prophecy. Isaiah continues in verse 3, God has enlarged the nation. This nation at the time was shrinking as, as Assyria was pressing in and carving it up. But now, Isaiah says, again looking into the future, the tide is turning, the trend is being reversed, God is enlarging the nation again. Oppression and oppressors, foreign kings are being vanquished. And God's land and, and people are being reclaimed for Him again. And this brings great joy. Verse 3. We've been singing about joy this morning. The people rejoice before their God. And Isaiah is at a loss as to how to adequately express this joy. So he thinks of the two most joyful events that there were in, in his time. The bounty of harvest and the victory in battle. These were times when food and drink were the most plentiful as farmers brought in their harvest and, and where riches and treasures abounded as soldiers plundered their enemies. Today it might be like hitting the jackpot or uh, winning the Super Bowl or landing your dream job or, or marrying the, your, your dream girl or your dream guy. That's the kind of joy that, that God is giving to His people. Then Isaiah gives three reasons for this joy. In verses 4, 5, and 6 and following, he gives them. In the Hebrew, each of these verses begins with a word which means because. The NIV version translates this word as for in verses 4 and 6. And they leave it untranslated in verse 5. But it's there in the Hebrew in each case, introducing three reasons for the people's great joy. First, in verse 4, the people rejoice because God has removed their oppression. Isaiah compares this deliverance to the days of Gideon where with a few weak men, God delivered Israel out of the hands of the mighty Midianite hordes. He also compares it to Israel's slavery in Egypt. Now, Isaiah doesn't mention Egypt directly, but rather he alludes to the yoke of slavery and the bar and the, the rod of their oppressors. That was Egyptian bondage language. And in that case too, God had miraculously delivered His helpless enslaved people out of the hands of Pharaoh who was the mightiest emperor on earth at the time. And now in Isaiah's prophecy, such a miraculous deliverance again has caused the people to overflow with joy. I mean, you've experienced something like this, right? Your, your, your team is the underdog in the big game. The opponents are favored to win by a huge margin. Everyone says your team doesn't stand a chance. But somehow, your team pulls off a huge upset, a modern-day miracle. And in the closing seconds of the game, they win the game, and the fans go absolutely nuts, right? There's ticker tape parades and champagne. And this that Isaiah is talking about is far more than a game. This is the deliverance of a captive people from their oppressors against all odds. 
And so the people go crazy with delirious joy. Second in verse 5, the people rejoice because war has come to an end. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned up. As best as scholars can tell, this phrase warrior's boot, which is a rare word in Hebrew, refers to the type of footwear that Assyrian soldiers wore. And Assyrians were also known for wearing red into battle. It was a sort of taunt to their enemies that that the Assyrians would soon be wearing their blood because they were going down. And this is likely the idea of uh, uh, that garments rolled in blood comes from. What a vivid picture of an end to horrible violence as all the trappings and outfits of war are being piled up in a heap and burned. The war is over. Finally, peace has come. Third in verse 6, the people rejoice because a child is born. A son is given. This is the royal son who will accomplish all of this. He is the king who will dispel the gloom and bring honor and light and brightness to Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee. He is the king who will bring God's light into dark places, bringing the dawn after the dark night, the spring after the long winter. He is the king who will bring joy to God's people, rescuing them from oppression and captivity and and bringing wars to an end. Leadership matters. And for God's faithful people who, who loved God and who trusted God in the days of Isaiah and who were suffering under the inept leadership of King Ahaz and who through no fault of their own were suffering the tragic consequences of Ahaz's leadership, for such people, think of the hope and, and think what joy the birth of this new promised king would bring. This boy, this child would would grow and mature until his shoulders were broad enough to shoulder and bear the responsibilities of government and to fill out the mantle which this prophecy has designed and destined for him. Let's take a moment at the end of verse 6 then to unpack these wonderful names or titles, whatever they are, that are given to this child, this king. Wonderful counselor. This refers to the king's wisdom. Every king had counselors and advisors to help make important decisions. And if you look into the original Hebrew, where uh, um, the wonder in wonderful here um, is wonder as in signs and wonders. It suggests, um, and so some have suggested translating it, supernatural counsel. That's the kind of wonderful we're talking about here. This king's own counsel will be supernaturally given. Just as God had given amazing wisdom to King Solomon, so this king will have unparalleled wisdom, wise counsel to discharge the duties of his office and to oversee the welfare and the administration of his people. Finally, a leader who is truly wise. Next, mighty God. In Hebrew, this word mighty is a military term. It's the noun form of this word is used of warriors. This king will be a mighty warrior in battle. 
He'll have the strength. He'll have the, the prowess to fight on behalf of God's people and for God's cause and for God's kingdom. And he'll not only be mighty, he will be mighty God. Now, the Jews in Isaiah's day couldn't have grasped the full implications of that word. But we know now that, that this God, as the New Testament writers tell us, this king would be God in the fullest sense of that word. Then we have everlasting father. Kings were sometimes called fathers of their people. That was because ideally they were responsible to show concern for the welfare of their people and to be the kind of rulers who the people could look up to and depend on with trust and with admiration. And this king will be all that, but more because he will be an everlasting father. There have been great kings in the past, but unfortunately they've all died and taken their place in the history books. And sometimes their sons were not as righteous or competent as they were. If you read Isaiah 6, this had been the case when Uzziah, king of Judah, had died right at the start of Isaiah's ministry. And Uzziah had been a good and a righteous king, and he had reigned a long time. And under the stability of his rule, Judah had flourished. There was a golden age. But he couldn't live forever, and, and he died. And, and by the time his wicked son or grandson Ahaz took the throne, we know what the situation had deteriorated to. But not so with this king, the one called Everlasting Father. His people never need worry that, that things are going well now, but the, the man is getting old and his son seems to be another story. No, this king's reign would last forever. He would be an everlasting father to his people. Then lastly, he would be a prince of peace. Remember, whenever we see this word peace in the Bible, we have to think of the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is far more than peace, the way we use the word today. The peace of, or sorry, the prince of peace brings shalom, brings wholeness, brings flourishing in, in every sense of the word. This prince would restore all things to the way that they were meant to be. And of the increase of his government and of shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal, the passionate jealousy of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God's passionate jealousy for His people, for His glory, for His plans on the earth would cause God to send His people such a king. Wow, just think what good news this was for God's people in Ahaz's day. Because leadership matters. And they were suffering under the faithless leadership of Ahaz and things were going from bad to worse. Their lives, their dreams were crumbling down around them. But Isaiah offered them hope. God wouldn't let his people suffer endlessly. No, God would send them a king, a king wiser than Solomon, a king mightier in battle than King David, 
A king whose good fatherly rule would endure far longer than good old King Uzziah's ever did. A king who would save them. A king who would restore them. A king who would bring peace, everlasting shalom, now and forevermore. This was great news for Isaiah's contemporaries, and it's even better news for us. Because we know who this king is. This king has come. Not just for his people, but for the whole world. Because when no earthly king was up to this task, God sent his own son to be this king. And so on this, the fourth Sunday of Advent, we celebrate that this king has been born. And this king now reigns. He reigns with wisdom, which is God-given and supernatural. He fights against his enemies with a mighty ferocity, which is undefeatable. He's been reigning now for 2,000 years, and he's not even close to slowing down. And no one can topple him off of his throne until he brings shalom, peace to the whole earth, mending everything that's broken, bringing healing to every hurt and every disease, putting right every wrong, breaking every bondage, and setting every captive free, washing away every sin and every regret. Do you know this king? Have you given your allegiance to his rule? Are you aligning your life with the purposes of his kingdom? Have you stopped trying to figure it all out yourself like Ahaz tried to do? And have you recognized that God welcomes into his kingdom those who instead are like children who will simply trust in God and in his king? Leadership matters. And the truth is, we don't deserve a king as good as the king that Isaiah foretold. But God, in his grace, and because of his zeal for his own name and glory, he offered us the blessing of such leadership anyway. Will you follow such a leader? Let's pray. And as we pray, um, I want you to think of that little book, which I'm sure some of you have read, My Heart, Christ's Home, where the author invites us to picture Jesus coming to our house, coming in. And when he shows up, we suddenly face the question of certain rooms that we might not want him to go in, that we might be embarrassed to have him see. And so I invite you to think about this king and parts of your own life and where his kingdom holds sway and parts you have not yet surrendered to his kingdom. Maybe he's at the door and you haven't let him into your life at all. Or maybe there's certain parts that are so dark or you're holding on to so tightly that you're afraid to give into his care. And as we pray to uh, talk to him about those parts. Jesus, thank you. It's a big responsibility to be a leader. 
you carry a lot of weight on your shoulders. Just in trying to take care of my life and my family, let alone this whole church, let alone this country and this world. And you've been reigning and we see wonderful signs of your reign and yet we see so many places that are still so broken and dark and hurting and wicked. We see them in our own lives and relationships and we see them around us. And Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see what a good king your son is and to move our hearts to entrust all of ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you open up more of your life to the king this morning, um, tell someone about it. Don't keep it to yourself.